Father, we do pray that you would speak through your word. You would remind us this morning of how good it is that we can come to you honestly and faithfully. How good it is that we can expect, Lord, that you will reveal yourself to us through your word and through your son and through the power of your spirit. And so, Father, I pray that we would rely upon that today, that we would be encouraged by your word today to rely upon that in our lives this week. Lord, I pray for those in our church who are facing decisions, big or small, easy or difficult, to be reminded today that we do everything and we make every one of our decisions in reliance upon you. Please work in Christ's name, amen. So if you would, turn in your Bibles to Habakkuk 1.12. Habakkuk 1.12. So last week, we looked at the first 11 verses of Habakkuk and we saw Habakkuk's first question and we saw God's first response. And in a nutshell, Habakkuk's question was about how God could idly do nothing, just idly do nothing when evil and injustice ran rampant in Judah, and evil ones were the ones who were prospering. God's response to Habakkuk was wild, literally. He wasn't idle at all. No, he was raising up a nation that was violent, self-centered, godless, and, and was sweeping across the land, and they were God's judgment against the evil in Judah. And so last week, what we talked about in our sermon is we talked about how God's answers are His own. We can't ask God a question as a test, waiting for Him to, to say the answer that we want Him to say. By the way, I got probably more feedback from my sermon last week than I've gotten in a sermon in a long time. A lot of you wanted to let me know that you love McDonald's, and I'm going to pray for you <laughs> about that. If you don't know what I'm talking about, you just have to go listen to the sermon. But we can't ask God a question as a test and then wait for him to say the answer we want him to say. Set him up as though God, depending on how you answer this question, is whether or not I decide you're going to still be God or not. That's not how it works. He's the creator of all things. We can't tame him. We can't control him. He has created and upholds all things from the depths of the sea to the furthest reaches of the universe. He's made it all. He designed it to work perfectly together. And he is the sovereign ruler over it. And that can make us uncomfortable when we really face that. The reality of it. The unstoppable brick wall reality that God's answer is His own. And His answer, His response to Habakkuk is a very uncomfortable one. It's a painful answer in a lot of ways too. We need to see that because the coming of the Chaldeans will mean horror and suffering for Judah. There will be men, women, and children who starve and die, who are taken and sold into slavery. That's what these verses mean. 
That's what's behind them. So the Chaldeans, they had this practice where they would take slaves that they captured and they'd take this hook and they would put this hook into their nose and then they would lead them around by the hook that they had put in their nose. There's images from this period of the Chaldean gods hauling slaves in giant nets. And Habakkuk and the other prophets of this time, they're going to lament over how terrible things become for the families even for the righteous families of Judah. But this was God's answer. All the same. And so now today what we're going to do is we're, we're only going to look at Habakkuk's response to God's answer today. So again, as I said last week, I'm not going to say everything that needs to be said by the end of today. We're, we're taking it slowly as we work through the conversation between the prophet and God here. It's important that we focus on how the prophet responds to this shocking answer from God, this answer that he clearly doesn't understand or like. I mean, how would you like? Just think about this for a minute. Just imagine being Habakkuk. How would you like having the job of telling your countrymen that they are about to be destroyed by a ravening horde that God has raised up? I mean, some people honestly might relish doing that. But Habakkuk takes his responsibility as a prophet of God seriously. He is to intercede for the people, but he's also to speak God's truth for the people. So he wants God's people and himself to be able to understand why it makes sense for God to do this terrible thing to them. So I'm going to go ahead, actually, before we read, I'm going to tell you what the three points are for today's sermon so that you can observe them for yourself as we read through this. So again, our sermon today is about the prophet's faithful response, his careful response to God and his answer. So here's the three points. One, a sincere faith, a sincere faith. Two, a perplexed faith a perplexed faith, and three, an expectant faith. So we're going to see a sincere faith, a perplexed faith, an expectant faith. Let's read beginning in verse 12. This is Habakkuk's response. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings them, all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet. So he rejoices and is glad. Therefore he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet, for by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint." So, 
first we're going to look at Habakkuk's faith on display in three ways. And the first way his faith is on display is this sincere faith. In verse 12 and in the beginning of verse 13, we see there that Habakkuk knows God. He's got good theology. So verse 12 is a poignant declaration of a basic truth in the Old Testament. God is everlasting. He is the uncreated. He is the one who simply is. It's right there in the name that Habakkuk used here. Yahweh, the covenant God. I am who I am. He's also holy. And God's holiness is, of course, a, a fundamental description of God's character. Over the years, pastors and theologians have argued that God's holiness is really the attribute that describes all of His other attributes. He is separated from us, perfect in His purity. His wisdom is holy. His goodness is holy. It's all entirely and completely His own. And Habakkuk knows that. And he approaches God knowing that. Because he's just been shown by God that God is entirely his own and his answers are his own. There could actually be a little bit more to his, his choice of words here, though. So this morning in Sunday school, we spent some time looking at the story of King Hezekiah. And now Hezekiah was a king of Judah a few generations before Josiah was. So there was Hezekiah, then there was Manasseh, Amen, then there was Josiah. And Hezekiah was also faithful. And God blessed him and blessed Israel. But then, but then at the end of his days, he failed God and, and God punished him for it. But at one point in his life, Hezekiah was facing the threat of this ruler named Sennacherib who ruled Assyria. And the prophet Isaiah came to him and reassured Hezekiah. You can read about it in 2 Kings 19.25. The, uh, the same wording is also in Isaiah 37.26 where Isaiah says to King Hezekiah, he says, Have you not heard that I determined it long ago? This is God speaking. I determined it long ago. I planned from days of old what now I bring to pass. <clears throat> it's possible that here in Habakkuk's day and in his situation, he's calling to mind how God had raised up the threat of Assyria. And God had done that. Isaiah said that Assyria was the rod of his anger. And so Habakkuk perhaps is called to mind how God had raised up Assyria in the days of Hezekiah, but then God had actually sent the angel of the Lord and he struck down the camp of the Assyrians and Sennacherib ran home and Sennacherib actually ended up being killed by his sons in his own temple. God, Isaiah said, who is from everlasting, God who determined things long ago from days of old, could he not do the same today? And so Habakkuk also says here, we shall not die. What does he mean by that? Does he mean that he won't die even though the Chaldeans are coming? No, remember, that this is the prophet speaking about Judah. And in a sense, he's speaking on behalf of Judah. So this phrase, we shall not die, 
what Habakkuk is doing here is he's calling to mind the promises that God has made to his people. Promises to the patriarchs, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that he would make a people for his own possession, that he would sustain this people. Promises that he made to the people when they were in slavery, that he would give them a, a land. Promises that he made to David, that, that he would have a king forever in his line that sat upon the throne. These promises that God had made, Habakkuk here is relying upon them and he's saying, I know who you are, God. The uncreated, the sovereign God, the holy God. And I know that we shall not die because that's what you've promised. You have said that. And so what we're seeing here in verse 12 is a declaration that Habakkuk trusts God that God will keep his promise. No matter the horrible Chaldeans, there will be a remnant that remains. So to start off his response then, Habakkuk shows a sincere faith. It wasn't easy. But faith is rarely easy. Faith demands that you and I give up ourselves, doesn't it? Real faith. I mean, so often we can give lip service to faith, but what we really rely on is our own strength. Faith demands that we give up ourselves, that we, we trust someone else, and trusting someone else always means risking ourselves. Trusting that someone else will do what they say. And so Habakkuk starts off his, his response here with trust. But more than that, look at the second part here. O oh Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O oh rock, have established them for reproof. So Habakkuk also, beyond saying, I know who you are, and I trust you, and I know you will keep your promises, he takes it a step further. Habakkuk also understands that God is right to judge Judah. He is right to do it. He should do it. It's, it's his right, but also it's entirely within his power. So this is not the prophet doubting who God is. This is not the prophet doubting that God is what God is capable of. This is not the prophet seeing hard times and going, I don't even know if God exists anymore. That's not what's happening here. Christian, we can approach God and we can, we can wonder why He is doing what He is doing and we can ask questions. But notice how Habakkuk comes here. He's not doubting who God is. No, God ordained them. He said, you have ordained them of judgment. That is, by his own will, he determined that this would happen. He set aside these Chaldeans, and they're his. They're his to use as his tool of judgment. He also established them, he said. They only have their power. They only have their influence, all of it, because God established them. 
This is who God is. He's the Lord over all history. Habakkuk's not going to argue with that beautiful statement that we know. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. He knows that. He's not doubting it. So make sure as we begin to look at this response that you see a sincere faith here. But as one commentator put it, he said, Habakkuk does not have a weak faith, but he does have a perplexed one. And that's point two. So he has a sincere faith. He has a strong faith but he's also perplexed. In verse 13, Habakkuk lays out his question. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? This is what perplexes Habakkuk. He knows who God is and he believes in God but he doesn't understand how God could respond this way. Of course, Judah deserves reproof. Of course, they deserve judgment. There's no argument there. But raising up a nation that has contempt towards everyone, including God, who does horrifying things to people, who are full of injustice, violence goes before them, all of their faces are turned forward in violence, and then you give them such amazing success in the world? I really liked how one pastor described this because I felt like it laid out the problem well. He said the prophet's problem is intensified by the fact that the Lord in his dealing with Israel, appears to be contradicting those principles which he himself had laid down for his own people. God will not look on perverseness, yet he makes his prophet look on perverseness, which he did. God will not see evil. He will not look at wrong. You who are purer eyes than to see evil. But look back up at what Habakkuk 1.3 says. In Habakkuk 1.3, the prophet says, Why do you make me see iniquity? You who are of purer eyes than to see evil, why do you make me look at it? The Lord had declared it wrong for a witness to keep silence when a matter was brought before the public. You see that in Leviticus 5.1, by the way. Yet the Lord himself remains silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than they? So Habakkuk goes on to highlight exactly why this doesn't make sense to him in verses 14 through 17. First, he says, God made mankind like the fish of the sea. He made them in abundance. He made them everywhere. They have no clear ruler. In other words, they're, they're chaotic in their existence. And then in verse 15, Habakkuk says, he brings them all up with a hook. Now, this he is the wicked from verse 13. 
the wicked, the one that God has raised up for judgment and reproof, he goes out into the world that God made. He goes out among the people that God made like the fish of the sea, and he's simply just taking them for himself. And so what he's saying here is that the wicked, the wicked that God ordained and established is taking humans into slavery. That's the hook and that's the dragnet here. Remember what I said about, you know, they hook them and they they carry them uh, away. But here's the clincher. This, This wicked one, he's doing it and he's rejoicing and he's glad because of it. In fact, He is so joyful and he is so glad that what does this cause him to do? Do you see it there? He's so joyful and he's so glad that this causes him to worship. Now we are really turning things upside down. Verse 16, Therefore, Because of this, because he goes out into the world and with his hook and his dragnet, he takes whatever he wants. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and he makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. So he's making sacrifices. So those things, his his net and his dragnet, those things are symbolic of his might. Look up in verse 11. What did God say about these Chaldeans? The last thing he said, they're guilty men whose own might is their God. What's a better symbol of their might than the net that captures all of their enemies and makes them slaves? Than the very item that shows their power over everyone else? They're free to do what they like, and everybody else is in nets, their nets being dragged around by them. So there's a couple of things that this remind me of. One is this reminds me of how John Piper always would say that we are made to worship. We're we're, we're all worshiping beings. We were designed to worship. And if our worship is not focused on God, our worship is going to be focused on something. We were made to do it. We were made to find something. And so here you have this perfect picture. They they have no God, and so what do they do? They end up worshiping these nets. They end up worshiping their might. But the other thing that, that jumps out to me about this is, do you notice the order of the worship here? What comes first? The wicked man worships his net, makes sacrifices to his net, only after... It has produced the results. Therefore, because this has happened, because he's going out and taking these slaves, then he worships. But Habakkuk, Habakkuk began his question here with a totally different and unique way of understanding worship. Are you not from everlasting? The Lord, in other words, has always been God. He's not to be worshipped only after he produces something that we want. 
That's all the more important when we realize that Habakkuk is wrestling with what God has said he's doing. Habakkuk doesn't like it and he doesn't understand it. But that doesn't change the fact that God is God, does it? Just because he doesn't like it, just because he doesn't understand it. Habakkuk is exactly right to say, are you not from everlasting, the Holy One? How often are you and I tempted to move, to take away our worship of God, to stop worshiping Him, to focus our worship on something else that would give us rest or pleasure or satisfaction because we don't like what we perceive that God is doing in our lives. Habakkuk shows his understanding of, of this truth that God is to be worshipped, period, because he's God. He is from everlasting. We're going to dig deeper into that later on in this conversation between Habakkuk and God. But make sure you see here this contrast between Habakkuk and his worship and these Chaldeans. But he's pointing out that he doesn't understand how the one who is perverting worship is rejoicing and is glad. So this isn't just about how the wicked that God ordained and established are swallowing up the righteous. But added to that, they're also blatantly worshiping idols as a direct result of the success that God has given them. This is all wrong. It doesn't make any sense at all. And it leads to his final question. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? Is this situation going to stand, God? Are you going to allow evil to overrun your creation for forever? I mean, this is the heart of the question. <laughs> this is the heart of the question that you have probably felt at some time in your life as well. God, are you going to do something about this? Are you going to respond? This is a common way to feel. If you've ever felt that way and you've gone, oh my goodness, I must be a terrible person. No, you're just a person. We can be terrible. I mean, Habakkuk is sitting here saying exactly what the psalmist in Psalm 94 told him not to say. Remember we started the service with Psalm 94? <laughs> And they say, the Lord does not see, the God of Jacob does not perceive. Understand, O dullest of the people, fools, when will you be wise? He who has planted the ear, does not he hear? He who formed the eye, does not he see? He who disciplines the nations, does he not rebu rebuke? And here's, here's a back end going, you don't see. Why, why, why are you not looking? Why have you turned your eyes away? 
because it doesn't make sense. So if you've wrestled with that, one thing I just want to say to you, because I've talked to people who, because they've wrestled with that, have then wrongly concluded, I must not be a Christian. I must not, I must not, I must not be one of God's children at all. That's wrong. That's a lie. Christ makes us his children. The blood of Christ is sufficient for us. It is possible for us to be perplexed and also be faithful. It is possible for us to wrestle and also trust. So don't just jump to extremes. Sometimes we can do that, right? Sometimes with our, our emotions can kind of run away with us and we can just jump to extremes and we can just go, you know what, the easiest thing for me to say here would be to just jump all the way off the cliff and just go, well, this is all just the worst it can possibly be and I'm just a terrible person and I'm going to hell and there's nothing we can do about it. I'm done. And you just want to go, whoa, whoa. God's going to have an answer for Habakkuk next week, but you and I are going to stop here. And we're going to remember that we know a lot more than Habakkuk did. But we still ask this question. Are you going to do something about this, God? But when we ask this question, even today, we need to know that there is a clear answer to it. God has responded. In the most fundamental way, God has responded. In every single situation where we are confronted with evil in this world, from sicknesses that feel unfair to terrible national crimes, from evil on a personal level to evil on a global level, we want to ask, God, are you going to respond to this? But what we have to remember is that God has responded. And there's a clear reason why this is still going on. His response to evil, to every single instance of evil, is found in the coming of Jesus into this world and God's activity on the cross. In Christ, all those who deserve justice but cry out for mercy are forgiven. In other words, all those who deserve justice from God but have cried out for mercy, have confessed their sins and repented, the response to their sins was Christ on the cross dying for them. He came to give them new life, to take the wrath and the punishment for their sin, to give them the hope of eternal life. And for those who don't cry out for mercy but continue to live in sin, Christ's coming is also the response to that. Because right now, as we live in this world, as we still live in this world, there is an opportunity for redemption. There is an opportunity for peace. There is an opportunity for forgiveness and for mercy. God has responded to evil. And that response was Jesus Christ. And what should you and I do 
in the face of every single kind and instance of evil, we should go to Christ. God has responded, but he hasn't finished the story yet. In in Jesus coming once, he confirmed that he keeps his promises and he will come again. But right now, as we saw in John, he is waiting for all of his sheep to come to him. So when you are tempted to think that God has not responded, remember that he has. Evil has lost already. But today is not the day of final judgment. When we're talking about the evil things that we see in this world, today is not the day of final judgment. Do you know what today is? Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to come to Christ and to rely upon Him. It's like the story with Jesus in Luke whenever the Tower of Siloam fell and it killed these these men and, and they're coming, they're going, hey, Jesus, what about that? And Jesus turns to them and He's like, don't worry about them. They're done. Worry about you. Today is the day of salvation. Now is the time. God has responded. Today is meant for bringing people out of judgment and into the light of Christ. So Christian, that means for you today is for relying on Christ and living for Christ and trusting in Him. And for you to point others to Christ. This whole moment in history, this moment that has lasted just over 2,000 years so far, that's good biblical imagery, right? This moment that has lasted for over 2,000 years. This whole moment is so that you and I, while we're here on earth, can be the mouth and the hands of Christ bringing his sheep in. The response has happened. The flock is coming in. So don't doubt that God has responded to evil. Don't doubt that he's looked, don't don't think he's looked away from it. Make sure you understand that his response is found in what he's done through Christ, what he is doing through Christ, and what he will ultimately do through Christ. That response is sufficient for everything that we face. So what I want to say now is I want to say a word about character because we're still looking at Habakkuk, our older brother here. And I want to say a word about character. Proverbs 14, 15 says, The prudent gives thought to his steps. The prudent gives thought to his steps. That is the prudent one, the careful one, the one who who reasons. Before he takes his steps, he considers where he's going. He considers what's in front of him, what's the best way to go. You know, one of the qualifications for an elder in the church is that he be sober-minded. That is, he has control of his mind. He, He can control his temper. He can control his passions. It's not that this man doesn't feel those things, but it's that those things don't control him. Habakkuk provides a powerful illustration of being both sober-minded and perplexed. 
He's not railing at God here. His questions are controlled by what he knows and what he believes in. He approaches God on the basis of truth. God is from everlasting. God is perfectly pure and holy. God will judge and reprove wickedness. He could be allowing his emotions to control him here, couldn't he? And we could be sympathetic to him if he did. He could be screaming at God here. If you doubt that, then just go read Lamentations this afternoon. If you were living through the moment that is described in Lamentations, how could your heart not be breaking constantly? To see your children starving to skin and bone in the streets because you can't feed them. But the prophet doesn't allow his emotions to control him. Sober-minded doesn't mean that you don't ask the questions you're struggling with. And being sober-minded certainly doesn't mean that you don't struggle. That's the accusation that some people can make to a person who's sober-minded. They say, well, you've got it all together. You don't struggle with this. But that's not what's happening. It simply means that you are constrained by a deeper and a more powerful truth. The truth that God is sovereign and that He is ultimately good. We all need to strive to be sober-minded. Even as we feel our emotions, and God gave us our emotions to feel them, God gave us our emotions to, to help us to understand ourselves and what's going on around us. We're called to be emotional people. Weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. But I think we all know that it doesn't take much to fall into the realm of allowing our emotions to just control us, our emotions to run us. And when our emotions run us, you know what pretty much the first thing that goes out the window is? Reality and truth. What is real and what is true doesn't matter compared to how we might feel in that moment. It's very important for us to be able to engage with our emotions in a way that trusts God, that's sober-minded. So since you and I don't have the opportunity to have a conversation with God the way that Habakkuk does, how can we follow his example? We, we don't get to just speak and then have God just respond to us. Proverbs 18.15 says, An intelligent heart acquires knowledge, and the ear of the wise seeks knowledge. You and I, have been given this amazing repository, that's a fun word, isn't it, of God's own words. We have been given this amazing storehouse that, that has God's will revealed to us. His thinking, God's thinking, put down on paper for us. In fact, I will, I will say this book is full of answers 
I would go so far as to say this book has all the answers that you need to live a life complete in Christ and in relation to God. It has every single one of the answers that you need to live a life that is complete in Christ. Does that mean it has all the answers in the world? Nope, I didn't say that. but it can make you perfect and complete in Christ. He has left nothing out that you need in order to know who you are, to know who He is, and to know what you're doing here. So your answers are here. So we may wish to recreate Habakkuk's experience, you know, and go out into a field and cry to the heavens and and wait for God's voice to roll back down. But that's not what happens now. That's not going to happen until the skies roll back and Jesus himself comes down. And that day all the answers will be done and he's here. So now, what do you and I do? We ask our questions. And then being sober-minded... Self-controlled, discerning and wise, we go look for our answers where God has written them down. We seek our knowledge from His Word. It may not be quick. It may not be easy. But did you notice that even in this actual conversation with God, it wasn't quick and easy? Also, did you notice... Quick and easy conversations with God just aren't really a thing in Scripture. I don't, I don't know if you've picked up on that. I mean, Job's conversation with God was neither quick nor easy at all. Moses had conversations with God, and I would not say some of them were quick, maybe. But they were all more on a level of terrifying than on the level of easy, Right? So why would you and I sit here and make an idol of, I just want God to give me the answer now. I just want this to be easy. It is worth taking our time. It is worth acquiring knowledge. It is worth growing in Christ. The answers are here. If you can't find them, go to someone to help you find them. That's why God gave us the church. It's worth taking our time. Today, let's just learn, though, from our older brother Habakkuk. His faith is sincere. At the moment, it is also perplexed. He is struggling to understand. But even in his perplexity, make sure that you see his faith. And that brings us to our third and our final point. He's expectant in his faith. He's sincere, he's perplexed, but he's also expectant. Chapter 2, verse 1. I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. Habakkuk expects that God will answer. And he also anticipates that he'll respond again after hearing from God. But make sure that you see that Habakkuk is not anticipating what God will say. Perhaps he learned his lesson about that. This isn't a test 
Like I mentioned last week, God, uh, Habakkuk is not sitting here waiting for God to say what he wants to hear. Habakkuk is actually prepared to listen to God. He is the prudent man. I will look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. In other words, he's looking forward and this is kind of important because you and I can be bad at this. We, are, we can look forward into the future waiting for the answer, but we don't oftentimes need to look forward to see what our response is because we already know it. <laughs> it doesn't matter what you're going to say. This is what you have to hear. This is my response. But Habakkuk is looking forward not only to see what God will say, but he doesn't know what his response will be yet. There's prudence here. He's prepared to actually listen to God, process what God says, and then he'll respond. He is being both faithful and sober-minded. I would say, and given the way that Habakkuk rolls out, I think this is true. He is expectant that he will be trusting God's response, even if it's difficult to hear and understand. This is a beautiful picture of communion with God. Of the full picture of communion with God. Sincere, perplexed, expectant. But it all focuses on God, on who he is. Don't forget that he's grounded all of this in are you not from everlasting? So can you and I learn from Habakkuk here? We absolutely can. And it should actually be easier for us than it was for Habakkuk because we know the lengths that God has gone to show his mercy. We know the lengths that he's gone to give us his forgiveness instead of judgment. We know that he's made good on his promises. We know that his ultimate response to the evil of this world, the evil that started back at the fall, it's happened and it's in Christ. And you and I find our protection and our safety there. So, live your life in faith, sincere, perplexed, expectant. But it's all trusting in God. Next week we'll pick up and we'll look at God's response to him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your patience with us. We thank you, Lord, for how incredibly patient you can be. Lord, I pray that each one of us here would be so full of the truth of Scripture that we can sound like Habakkuk. Our questions, our perplexed questions are grounded on the truth of who you are, that we don't ever stray from the safety of what you have given us and so, Lord, I pray that we would grow in our trust. I pray we would grow in our trust enough, Lord, that we would rely upon you even in the midst of difficulty, even when we can't understand, even when your answers to us are not at all the answers we would want. Forgive us, Lord, for how quickly we are prone to turn our backs on you. 
when deep down we know that you know what is best for us. What you are doing is better than anything we could conceive of, even if we don't understand how. And so, Lord, help us to cling to Christ, your great response, your perfect response, the one that makes us new creations. And let us worship you, Lord, in his name. Amen.